Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Wilfred Riley. He is an American political science professor at Kentucky State University. He's also the author of Hate crime hoax and 10 facts you can't talk about alias taboo i get to pick his brain about why the american elites are so gosh darn mediocre without further ado here is wilfred riley a lot of the kind of mainstream wisdom today is really spectacularly wrong um i think that with what is it now 50 years of legacy programs and affirmative action We've managed to manufacture a leadership class that's composed in large percent of idiots. I mean, and I don't think I'm the most brilliant guy in the world. I think among an actual elite, I'd be like a solid A minus, you know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, looking at these people like Fauci, Kamala Harris, what's our current press secretary, uh, Jean-Pierre Saki was fairly good. Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, Jared Kushner just wrote a book that's number one in the country. Looking at these people, they look like guys who would have been a few spots behind my buddies in law school, if that. Yeah. There's not that sort of dark majesty that even a Nero had. We're being ruled by mediocrities. And at any rate, I think that as a result of this, very often people that are coming from heterodox positions using sort of common sense logic or that kind of basic method skill that a lot of socially awkward grad students on the internet have um, are more likely to be correct than the official position. I, I think I'm rambling a bit here, but we saw that with COVID, and we certainly see that with race and class all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What you made me think of is how uh, people criticize Sarah Palin as kind of uh, a midwit or even a oh, yeah. low wit. But it seems like now the entire uh, elite class is uh, Sarah Palin equivalent just with different kind of shades of social activism or something like that. Not to denigrate uh, Sarah herself. I don't know her that well, but just the the betrayal that she had. Uh, so one of the things that I find fascinating about the dissident right or, you know, the Yarvin kind of crew yeah. and associates is their analysis of power and is their explanation of the mediocrity of the what we call the deep state or, or just the state itself. Are you attracted to that? Or do you have you kind of gravitated towards understanding why we're ruled by mediocrity and is that part of our policy or the structures themselves i think there are a couple different points there first of all i would absolutely agree that a lot of the people on kind of the dark enlightenment right and this is true on what i call the true left as well like if you ever chop it up with someone from like chapo trap house these people that have been consigned to the fringes where they're actually reading the books that break down the arguments for monarchy, the arguments for Marxism, so on, tend to be far, far more intelligent and tougher to debate than the people that have been reading Robin D'Angelo in graduate seminars. I, I That's absolutely accurate. Um, I mean, debating, say, Jared Taylor, which I did on one occasion, versus Ibram Kendi. I mean, I, I don't agree with either of their positions, but I don't think there's any comparison in terms of mm-hmm. the level of difficulty there. 
So that I, that I think is correct. And I, I think to some extent that's an artifact of those people having to actually develop and test their theories, knowing that they're almost invariably going to meet a hostile reception. Um, so, you, yeah, you get a lot of the sort of mad genius prince types um, in those margins. Am I attracted to that? Not really. One of the things when I said I'm not an alt or dissident anything, really, uh, I'm actually a leader in this society. I mean, I'm a successful investor and tenured professor at a fairly major university. So, like, I, I can say basically what I want because of the first one of those. Uh, but I mean, and because of my books, one of which you see behind me in a subtle plug. But I mean, my goal actually would be for America to improve the standards of selection for its leadership team and remain in a place of global prominence for 200 years or something like that. Uh, and should we fail to do that to a sufficient degree? I mean, I would seriously consider moving to some other countries that would probably welcome me. I mean, my father was from the UK. Um, you know, I'm, Ghana has a standing offer for black elites. Uh, no soy fluente, pero se habla español bastante bueno por americano. I mean, Mexico's right below our border. Now, this isn't going to happen. But I mean, my goal is sort of continuing American success for the region, country, social class, et cetera, that I'm in. I mean, that that's actually, I think, a pretty fair uh, summary. I just I dislike lying. I'm sure I bullshit a lot if you if you watch me talk and so on sometimes. But I mean, in general, I try to say things that are true. And I think I do so reasonably effectively, although with a bit of bluster. And it annoys me to see people tell obvious dumb lies and not only get away with it, but be sort of lionized. So one, yeah, there's some mad genius stuff going on in the margins. Two, am I attracted to it? Not especially, not particularly. Um, but I think that the appeal of the margins comes from the fact that people can look at that mainstream. I mean, I've mentioned some of these people, uh, Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo. I mean, like the 1619 Project, there are a couple of very solid authors in there, but I mean, the majority of the things that were said, Revolutionary War was fought to maintain slavery. I mean, I think a lot of people look at this stuff. I mean, like a political race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, these sort of doddering blowhards. I mean, I, I think a lot of people look at this and they say our leaders seem to be idiots, factually, objectively. What are the other options? My my critique of that would be that I don't think most of the options are all that sustainable. Um, I mean, so if you're talking about, say, Yarvin Moldbug, for example, when I first encountered him on the Internet, I really get the feeling he would like a king. I mean, he's he's essentially writing from a classical European monarchist tradition, but we're not going to have a fucking king. I mean, no, no offense to an intelligent guy, but like, I don't think that's how we're going to resolve our disputes in this country. So that sort of stuff is fascinating. Love to have a debate with the guy or have him on cut the bull. But that's I don't think you need a center that's run by competent people or your society is going to fall apart. Yeah. Like the fringes can swoop in and save it at the end or destroy it and take over in kind of a warlording model. But for what we have now to go forward, we need to kind of purge the system that keeps producing these idiots. I think that's a, that's a very valid way of putting it. Yeah. If I were king of the world, I'd probably eliminate all legacy programs, all or almost all affirmative action probably even shit like athletic scholarships for how well you can paddle a canoe um, tomorrow. Well, I mean, I would go back. We're going to be fighting Why? China. Because those are padding, uh, padding our center or, or our systems with uh, midwits. Well, sort of. I mean, uh, to some extent, I'm like, I, 
actually, that is a thing I would do. There was no bluster there at all. But I mean, I'm not saying everyone in any of those three, all those three categories is an idiot. But I mean, if you're looking at how selective processes work, I mean, in the elite American universities, I would say, as someone who's been an executive at a university, ombudsman, not president or anything like that. But I mean, I would say that probably 25 to 30 percent of students actually just get in. I mean, you're talking about massive racial preferences, which benefit the large majority of black and Hispanic students, which is now a sizable minority of all students. I mean, Harvard, 16 percent African-American. Then you're talking about like, Wait, yeah, sorry, talking, pause. 68 percent of the Harvard uh, class, 68, 16. Oh, 16. OK, which is above the 13 percent. I just wanted to yes. And I mean, it, that's remarkable when you think about it. I mean, I, I do think test score gaps are closing, but I mean, they're still on the SAT. The black average is 950. The white average is consistently over 1050 these days, usually around 1110, 1115. So, I mean, you would expect that if blacks make up 13 percent of the population, you'd see maybe 8 percent black at Harvard stretching it a little bit. Uh, you're actually seeing double that figure. So, I mean, the the large majority of those people, I'm sure intelligent, interesting kids, but obviously did receive some sort of boost. If you're overcoming the 200 point lag and you're actually overrepresented at the institution. So, I mean, that that's a huge percentage of the people at any elite university, Ivy, Big Ten, Pac-10, Patriot. Uh, legacy programs, probably about the same percentage. That doesn't just mean you're a rich doofus. It also, I mean, they're benefits for the children of faculty members, the children of coaches, the children of administrators now, which is a a very large cadre. Mm -hmm. So I I don't just want to rant about academia, but if you get rid of all of that, and I mean, again, the athletic teams, that's 15% of the students at many schools. That doesn't just mean men's football or something that you might like or dislike, but understand kind of the role that plays at, say, Penn State. That would also be, you know, lacrosse, crew, I mean, at any large school, swimming, diving. So what I... I certainly would encourage students that got into the school to try out for the men's diving team. But I think I would eliminate virtually all of that and focus on essentially academic performance in terms of selecting potential leaders. Yeah. And when people say, well, that would exclude minorities or, or more importantly, you don't just want raw IQ. I mean, these people could all be dull nerds. The response to that is that they're equally quantitative measures of EQ, study time, so on down the line. You could throw grades in there at 50% with test scores, get some more black guys. But what we're doing doesn't make any sense. And I think we're seeing the results of it really every day. Yeah. I mean, just, and again, I have a whole bunch of flaws. I'm like 40 pounds overweight and I'm shouting into a computer (laughs) monitor right now. Who the hell am I? But I mean, just like, but when you look at all this though, like the John Fetterman Mehmet Oz race in Pennsylvania, like, I don't dislike either of these guys sort of as a businessman or as a human, but like Dr. Oz doesn't live in Pennsylvania. He doesn't seem to know anything about the state. So he's kind of wandering around doing things that he thinks are what like a normal middle class guy would do, like go to the grocery store and buy a crudite tray that costs $34, man, because that's what we all do when we hang out with the bros. <laughs> and then you've got this other guy who kind of is blue collar. His parents aren't as rich as they're being presented as being, but who had a stroke so he can't talk. I mean, he's up there in a Carhartt hoodie saying things like my house has a union hall. And you really do have to ask, like, are these the best individuals in a state of this size? And the answer to some extent right now might be yes. And we're going to get our clock cleaned by the Chinese or whoever the opponent is unless we 
we make some progress on that. So that would be more of my focus right now that diversity, equity, inclusion, new HR, DEI, SEL, ESG, all, all that alphabet soup bullshit, get rid of it. Yeah, but that stuff is incru it's encrusted in the institution. How do you perceive it to be eradicated or at least scaled back? It doesn't seem like it's going to scale back anytime soon. I think the challenge for kind of our generation of leaders and thinkers, because we're both not unknown guys, but is going to be scaling it back in the core institutions while building alternative institutions. Okay. I mean, I think that when you look at things like University of Austin, Hillsdale, I mean, these, these institutions that are not massive, but that now every year are pumping out a few thousand people that are saying, you know, I'm good enough to go to grad school pretty much anywhere. And mm -hmm. I'm going to continue saying the obvious things like, this is what culturalism is. This is what IQ scores are. I think that that makes it impossible to ignore reality. Um, I mean, and this is this is what's generally happened during sweeping cultural revolutions that result in a climate of anti-intellectualism aren't anything really new. Um, in the Arab world, this was known as desert Islam. Um, there was an ongoing clash between kind of urban the Islam of the cities, which encouraged sort of that El Jabir intellectual tradition and the idea from kind of the wild riders further out that any book but the Quran was pretty close to blasphemy. So you'd see these pretty successive waves where Islam would begin an intellectual tradition that was pretty close to on par with what we've accomplished in the West. And it was often based on the same writers, the ancient Greeks and so on. And then people would come in and destroy it. Um, you saw this under Christianity from time to time as well. I mean, you'd see these regressive swings in the church where scientific research would essentially be shut down. The story's exaggerated, but I mean, it's well known that Galileo was a target of the Inquisition, so on down the line. And very often what you've seen during these periods is kind of a few isolated institutions. I mean, you could argue even monasteries played this role after the fall of Rome. They certainly did. Um, in that time, the Christian faith was kind of the light preserver. In fact, the alternative yeah. was just barbarism and death. But I mean, certainly isolated universities during the time of extreme Christian overzealousness, so on. There were these these places that kept the light to some extent alive. And I think at the most baseline level, people need to do that, need to continue to use platforms and so on to make very obvious points against the would-be dominant ideology. I mean, uh, Colin Wright, who's a friend of mine, I think is a guy who's done a pretty good job with this. I mean, he has the whole uh, web uh, framework now, Reality's Last Stand, where he literally just has biologists write these explicit descriptions of how sex is real. And this sounds almost like a joke. I mean, in terms of, you know, okay, what, how many of these can you read? But what Colin realized, I think, is that there were almost no published papers making the point that sex is real in explicit, you know, Quillette to an academic journal mm -hmm. level prose. And the reason for this was that nobody had thought this would be something you would ever have to say. But given that you now do, there's this sort of wheelhouse that's doing it over and over and over and making it impossible to deny this obvious thing. So, I mean, uh, alternative institutions continue stating the points that you know to be true or that you can defend with logic, standard methodology. But the other point, I guess, would be within the institutions themselves, I, I do think there has to be some backlash against this. And I, I feel like that's coming to some extent. Where do you I see mean, it taking root or standing, finding a foothold? I, I'm sorry? Where, where do you see that pushback finding a foothold? 
Well, I think actually some of the or I, I think that some of the organizations that I'm in or that I financially support are going to be a pretty large part of it. Uh, something you've seen in the past couple of years is these unions of the phrase that comes to my mind is normal people that are from across the political spectrum in many cases, but just resisting a lot of this stuff. And here I'm talking about the woke successor ideology stuff. I mean, will there be a backlash from the extreme right in 15, 20 years? Possibly. And I think, again, hopefully there'll still be people standing for the light and saying, no, no, it's still moved. So my my allegiance here isn't particularly to the right side of the political spectrum, although, as I said, I'm a business guy by background. I'm at least center right politically. But it's more to obvious reality. Um, sex exists. IQ is real. You know, a whole bunch of things determine how ethnic groups perform. I mean, in every war is bad. In every one of the sectors that I do research in, there are sort of obvious facts that are currently being challenged. And my goal would be to continue promoting these facts, whether that's against darkness on the left or on the right, not to be too, you know, poetic there. <laughs> but I mean, I think as of right now, the the biggest danger is from the left side of the spectrum. If you're talking about kind of at least upper middle class intellectual conversation, um, I mean, there are still many creationists in the USA, but they're not writing for the New York Times, that kind of thing. So um, a good number of groups have kind of unified to to resist this. I mean, I'm a member of FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which actually is a bit to the left of me. But I mean, I'm on their advisory board. And the, their idea is, again, one of these very simple core points. And it's basically we're going to resist racism, which they define as differential treatment on the basis of race. So that would certainly apply to old school racism. I mean, there are cases where we've been contacted where, say, black workers are being harassed by Latino co-workers. We just saw a major case of this drop in the papers today, and I believe California. Oh, they're but, reporting on that? It seems like that would kind of upset the narrative. No, they're talking about it graphically. I guess black people still have a few more oppression points than Latinos. I don't know. Um, Latinos have started voting Republican, so they're, they're kind of iffy. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the, yeah, the, the story came out today in the L.A. Times that the largest discrimination suit in the uh, state of California and in the Pacific West of the USA doesn't involve whites at all. It's brought by blacks against Latinos. And the argument is that there's been pretty explicit racism on both sides, but it's worse from the Latin side. People are writing things in bathrooms like go back to Africa, you monkey. Uh, Hispanic supervisors are refusing to work with blacks because they say that they are lazy. They won't put out a lot of work. I don't I don't know what the actual work rate numbers are for people. But, yeah, this is something that's going on right now. OK. And if that was that was confirmed to be true, like fair would definitely oppose that because that that is racism. But what we're noticing is that most of the complaints of racism that we're getting come in the other direction. Uh, and they're equally ridiculous. I mean, there are white kids being forced to stand up in front of packed classrooms and confess to a full list of their privileges, for example. I mean, just Maoist stuff to some extent. Um, what was the crazy one today? This wasn't directly reported to FAIR. But, oh, yeah, the um, the housing units, the University of Cal Berkeley. Now, admittedly, these were off campus, yeah. but the the minority, the POC house, which actually has a couple of buildings, wouldn't allow whites on the premises at or least in the common areas. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was all of the common areas. I, maybe you could bring one into a room, but how that's kind bring of like one of those whites into a room. Yeah. But I mean, like, but these are real interesting questions. Like, I guess you could bring a white lover to a private room, but that, that's almost antebellum, right? Yeah. Like they'd have to come in through a back door or something because they didn't go through any of the common spaces. Yeah. Anywho, 
But yeah, I mean, that that kind of thing is actually pretty common. And the details were... Sorry, continue. I just have a question about that specifically. Of course, but the details were actually hilarious if you read through the whole thing. I mean, if you're going to bring a white over, you had to announce it in the group chat because this this dangerous beast was going to be on the premises. And there was like they the reason for it was that they feared white violence, apparently. So, I mean, just on and on and on with the nonsense. But the point is, I do think a lot of groups are coming forward, uh, three offhand, one 1776 Unites, the first group of this kind I got involved with, Black business and social science communities response to 1619. Um, mm-hmm. The second, heterodox social science community, at least. I mean, there are a lot of people that are pro 1619 among Black academics. But I mean, the second, I think, would be fair, which I think is going to be a major player in the space for a while. And the third would be FIRE. I mean, traditionally Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. They're now expanding. I mean, I, I know some of the, the donations that they're getting. They're, they're trying to fill an ACLU-like role. Yeah. So I, I think that there's going to be considerable backlash against a lot of this. Um, I also think people, whether they're entrepreneurs or their groups like FAIR, are going to start producing their own versions. So of, of X, I mean, Chloe Valdry's theory of enchantment is a good kind of first step toward this. I think you're going to see larger scale players get into this. But if, mm-hmm. if a state requires an ethnic studies curriculum, for example, can you write one that talks about Italians and Irishmen as well as Black Americans and that you know, includes Thomas Sowell as well as Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm-hmm. And if you did, would you find that 80% of the districts outside of a few major cities would adopt that, you know, defeating what was probably the original purpose of the legislation? I think from preliminary results, yeah, that's exactly what you'd find. Mm-hmm. I mean, 1776 Unites has an educational curriculum. And I once, I asked Bob Woodson, who's the founder of the group, just almost casually, like how many of them we'd had downloaded because it's generally a district that's going to download the curriculum. And he said 10,000. And I, I love Big Bob, but he's got a lot of things on his plate. And I, did, I wasn't sure he, was, he knew kind of what that meant. And I said, you know, I mean, so the 1619 curriculum is in 3,500 school districts. Ours is in 10,000. And he was just like, yeah, Riley, I mean, a lot more people agree with us. And I think that that's what you're going to find hmm. very, very often when competition is allowed. Okay. So first, the alternative institutions. But also, second, backlash against this stuff when you can, if you have any kind of stable position. The the issue is that it's going to be sort of a barnacle scraping journey, right? Like, how do you, I mean, the University of Michigan alone has a DEI office that employs 137 people. I mean, Michigan, I went to They're University probably making of making between forty dollars and $140,000 a year, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, 137 times, let's say 100,000. I mean, you're talking about, oh, it's only $14 million. Michigan's got a giant budget. Yeah. That's still a lot of money. I mean, Michigan only has about 40,000 students. So every student is paying. I mean, that's probably number two, number three on your list of student fees. Yeah. The diversity bureaucrats of the university. And not to ramble on about this one side topic, but you do have to wonder what each one of them does. To some extent. I mean, if you're looking at events promoting, let's say, interracial dating, or you're looking at tracking down every hate offense on campus, how many events like that or how many hate crimes can you have? How much of a brief does each of these 137 guys have? What, What are you doing? And that's a question that has never been satisfactorily answered. And I think as more people ask it, that may be when you see more people getting ready to scrape the barnacles. Like, there's no reason for this. Yeah. I, I might even be cool with three guys in that role. There's no, there's nothing wrong with promoting some kind of racial comedy, but 
137 is that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Back to the uh, that Berkeley housing unit with, that excluded whites. Isn't that part of freedom of, of association? They can be free. Any place can be free to exclude anybody that they want. Right. Isn't that like on one level of our liberal values, let's say, is that you can associate with whoever you want based on whatever guidelines you want. Um, to what degree well, should actually, the state be uh, investigating and, and inserting itself into how people freely associate? Well, actually, I actually think that's an interesting moral question that I've talked about in debates with hard writers that I took seriously before. Um, but the simple reality is that that's it's flamboyantly against the law. I mean, you know, whatever traditional ethics in the Anglosphere were, the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment of the Constitution pretty much between them explicitly say you can't discriminate on the basis of race, you know, sex, ethnicity, color, nationality or religion. And one thing that a lot of people forget, but that's just obviously, you know, res ipsa loquitur from that is that these laws protect, say, whites or Jews as well as blacks. So, no, you can't you can't operate a business and serve only black people as the nation of Islam is found and so on. So, no, a lot of this stuff is flamboyantly illegal. The, the only real question is who's going to prosecute it? I mean, when Barack, Mr. Obama was president, he was known for not doing that. I mean, Eric Holder was known for not pursuing these kind of cases. And I think you're probably seeing the same thing light under, you know, Joseph Robinette Biden. So there are some questions about what satisfaction you'll get in a very high profile case like this brought in a prominent court. But yeah, just a, is that against the law? Of course. Well, I mean, should it be against of, the law, though? I mean, should it be against should the government be intruding on people's free association? I'm kind of 50 50 on that. I mean, I, I think that in practice, yeah, I'm kind of 50 50 on it. I think that in practice, having some version of the Civil Rights Act in a modern multiracial country, as long as all groups can appeal to it. So and I think that's really the issue for white Americans. When I said, you know, the attorney general might not support your brief on that, that that's shameful comes to mind. That's bad. But it, the, just the idea that you can't discriminate against your countrymen past a certain point. You can in a private golf club, for example, but you can't actually open a business that sells, say, barbecue and call it the He-Man Woman Haters Club and not admit women <laughs> shopping for themselves or their husbands or their partners. I mean, it, it's very obvious why you can't do that. Well, and it that, also leads that to logic has led to transgender individuals intruding into women's sports, though. It's the same Title IX stuff. Well, I think that there I mean, that's like saying. So the argument, and I think that there are some interesting cult or hered claims at the margins here, but the basic argument against racism, which I largely essentially accept, is that the races aren't different in many ways that matter. Like we're not we're not running the hundred meter dash or you know, I mean Asians excel in gymnastics. We're not doing double axles or whatnot to get into a barbecue restaurant. We're not testing one another's, you know, peak into the curve abilities. When it comes to the large majority of things, day-to-day -day interactions, dating, eating, sharing a meal, playing pickup hoops, there's really very little practical difference between members of different races. And I think that the large majority of people who've been athletes or soldiers or who've engaged yep. in a dorm room bowl session would agree with that. Um, in general, by the way, we do recognize that there's a distinction between men and women. So you can sometimes discriminate against women or men in practice. I mean, it would be fair to say we have segregated, separate but equal toilet facilities, and the women's is, in fact, much nicer. 
I mean, so that that's exactly what's banned with whites and blacks. So I, I think as you get into degrees of practical difference, the civil rights law, maybe not the statute itself, but certainly the interpreting cases is pretty yeah. flexible. Yeah. The uh, the thing with the trans stuff is that to me, it's it's a level beyond even the male female. You can't claim any imaginable kind of identity and then say you're being discriminated against and you have the same rights as a Jewish American or a black guy or an Irishman or whatever the case might be. It just doesn't make sense. Like you can't say that it is discrimination against pedophiles, which is another sexual identity that we've seen a very some attempts to place under that LGBT banner. You can't claim that it's anti-map discrimination not to hire pedophiles as school teachers. I mean, there is a level, it's called rational basis for these laws. So I I think that obviously you can say, well, there's a rational basis for not letting someone with a nine-inch penis into a women's locker room. I mean, I don't don't think that that's an especially difficult point to make. Mm -hmm. Or any size of penis, rather than penis size. Yeah, but as we see in Port Townsend, um, uh, an 80-year-old woman was kicked out of the, the Y because she objected to a male body watching young girls dress. So the problem isn't the law then so much as maintaining common sense and maintaining even uh, even uh, interpretation and uh, w- w- implementation of the law. But if we don't have common sense, then it doesn't matter at all it, with any given law. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just a ma- to me, it's just a matter of not taking so there's a very famous line, our laws are designed for a moral and virtuous, yeah. and some people like Franklin would add intelligent people, and they're totally unsuited, totally unsuited to any other. I mean, I, I think that that's a good basic rule. So obviously, if you're a basically moral, basically intelligent populace, and you say, you pass a law saying you can't discriminate against someone because he's Irish, which is a major problem in the country for 100 years, I would say that is an ethical law. That makes sense. And that had a, that sort of thing would have a substantial effect on the building trades and so on down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, if you pass a law saying you can't discriminate against anyone for any reason, that doesn't make sense. I mean, you obviously are going to discriminate against people over 18 when you're picking Pony League baseball teams. I mean, they're just there are hundreds of examples that everyone throughout all of history has taken for granted that we now seem to be yeah. kind of screwing around with a little. But the trans stuff gets into that. I I don't understand the contemporary transgender movement. I, I don't mean that in like a dot old old dad kind of sense. I mean it in just sort of a basic understanding of biology sense. So like I had a conversation about this online with the sociologist Rod Graham, who I often argue with. We both sort of practice with it. But I mean, he said, you know, gender is real. And he sent me a couple of articles and said, well, what do you say about this, Riley? I think he had initiated as part of it. And I looked at it and I said, well, gender, what's meant by gender in the field of sociology or gender studies? is simply that you can give someone a scale, the old Butler scale or the GCI, one of them is called or something like that. And people can rate how masculine or feminine they feel. Mm-hmm. That's it. That That's your gender. So I am a fairly masculine male, not like to the obnoxious, like giga chat extent. But I'm like an eight out of 10 on the gender scale, it turns out. Um, and I suppose a feminine woman would be a two or something like that. The actual scale is much more complicated. But The reality is that your gender score doesn't have anything to do with what sex you are. So, I mean, one of the guys who follows me on social media, Larkin, is a guy who's gay. who's got a great fashion sense. looks pretty flamboyant, but he could also kick my ass. He weighs like 300 pounds. He's a bodybuilder. So his gender score would be very feminine, but he's clearly a dude. I mean, at least I assume it is. We haven't sat down and taken the test together, you know, but I mean... The argument that he, as a male-bodied 250-pounder, is a woman because he sometimes feels feminine or he likes men strikes me as just kind of the height of absurdity. 
So we can allow this is I mean, this is literally like Roman caricature level nonsense. It's the sort of thing you'd make fun of an emperor with. Like it's there's no basis for it. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to how people choose to dress and live their lives, I don't care. I don't think you do. But when it comes to a lot of this, like if you're a male bodied guy with a low butler scale or whatever score and you're you're Leah Thomas, for example, who exactly fits this bill, like somewhat feminine in feature. I mean, apparently has identified as a woman for a bit, but was also a top 400 men swimmer in the world. Can you compete against women because you are a woman? No. I mean, even if you recognize the concept of gender, there's also the deeper reality of sex. And it seems absolutely absurd to ignore that. I mean, if you ask what the difference is between women and trans women, I mean, a quick glib answer is the penis. Like the sex is something, it's the elephant in the room with the gender scores. People often say on the the trans side, well, you can't see someone's genitals. How do you know? You only know what they tell you. You can't see someone's gender spectrum score either. And I think it's a lot easier to notice that someone is a man than that someone internally male than that someone internally feels feminine. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the extension of the Civil Rights Act to trans people or for that matter, even gay people, I don't think was something that was intended by the drafters of the Civil Rights Act. I actually don't have a problem with adding sexual orientation. Like you can't fire someone just for being gay. I don't see that 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 harms anyone. But the issue is all of the other identities that have kind of crept under the Q and the plus. Yeah. I mean, like we talked about the the attempt to include maps, however serious that was. But all yeah. this stuff, I mean, asexual, the various fetishes, none of that has much of anything to do with being gay. Mm-hmm. But if the okay, so two things. So one, we have uh, it seems like you're an advocate for virtuous populism or status quo, competent status quo, Dianism. But we have on two levels. One, we have the encroachment of mediocrity or uh, successor idiocracy, to borrow uh, from <laughs> Yang and and the guy who did that Beavis and Butthead show. And we also have a kind of moral decay, or at least in the sexualities, like this kind of rolling promotion of variance on on sexuality. Those two things are kind of markers of societal decline. Is that fair to say? And how do you reverse that? Or on what level can a system or, or policy start to weed that out or to resist that? Well, I think that, yeah, of course. I mean, a decline in IQ scores and all of this. I'm a very quantitative person when it comes to research or even my sort of public intellectual books. I mean, I think you can measure all this. I mean, you can measure something like the joking term used is body count. But I mean, how many casual sexual partners people have had as a common proxy for kind of moral behavior? Mm-hmm. I don't know how appropriate that is. I, I, I mean, I like sex. I have no problem with people's choices generally within reason. But I mean, like, definitely you can see that swing wildly up into the 1960s and into the 1990s in the USA. Now it's actually dropping a bit. But it's, it's a pattern fairly similar to crime. I mean, it's dropping from an unusually elevated high. Hmm. Um, and I mean, you can even more specifically kind of getting away from the ethical stuff. You can test IQ. Uh, the account, A New Radical Centrism on Social, which is run. I mean, I think we're both familiar, but which focuses almost entirely on IQ patterns, actually broke out the latest longitudinal IQ data, not really dealing with race or anything like that, but just by level of education. And found that the IQ seemed to have dropped pretty dramatically. Let's see if I can pull this up, actually. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time while we're talking looking for this. But I mean, basically, like, right as of right now, after about a nine-point drop, the average IQ for someone with a graduate degree is 105. 
Um, that's across all races, ethnicities, so on. For someone with a ba- uh, bachelor's degree, I think it's 99. And for someone with a high school degree, it's 94. So, I mean, the idea that when you look at someone who represents the expert class, it, generally there's been a default assumption that you're looking at someone who's highly intelligent, say IQ over 120, relatively unbiased, who has a reasonably unique skill that you don't. Like I can do regression analysis, so most of the numbers I say are fairly real. When you're, in fact, they're entirely real. You just disagree with the implications of them. Um, but I mean, if you're looking at someone with a PhD in women's studies today, all three of those are questionable. That leads to doubt. So I, I think we're kind of going around the, this this one topic and chewing on it a little bit. I mean, so yes, of course, declining morality or intelligence in a society is bad and continued. It will lead to societal decline. I mean, and there, there are examples of this from every great society. I mean, I think it was Gibbon in the fall of Rome who pointed out that at the peak of Roman military prowess, they had something like 500,000 troops continually in the field. And as a result of that, they had 5,000, I suppose, it's pretty simple math, centurions, all of whom were trained in the Roman version of the martial arts and were fully literate, watch standards, so on down the line, could do higher mathematics. By the end of the, the Roman Empire, such as they were at the time, but by the end of the Roman Empire, I think they had 800. Like the actual quality of the men that they were sending out had dramatically declined. And so had the quantity, in fact. So they were relying on, you know, barbarian cavalry and so on down the line. And a lot of the the kind of alt narratives on this don't really make a lot of sense. I mean, all of these people were white in our terms. Most of them were still Italian. The issue was that they had not trained. They're, the standards that they had held people to had felt, fallen away for a bunch of reasons, mostly governmental corruption. Mm-hmm. So any society can collapse in this way. Similar problems in the Soviet Union near the end. I mean, they basically just ran out of money competing with us and were run by drunks. So could the same thing happen to us? Yes. What would we do to stop it from happening? I mean, I think we would, it, we have to return to a focus on training the best people in each field to lead mm-hmm. to some extent. I mean, I think when you're, I, we've been joking a little about monarchy, you're joking, but I mean, when I talked recently to a buddy from India and he was talking about the Biden Trump race, and we were sort of trading jokes about one another's societies. I won't repeat all of them here. But one of the things he said was, you know, when I look at Biden running against Trump, I think you bastards need a king. And it's just a funny line because, I mean, they're obviously they're most competent people in a quasi dictatorial role could probably do a better job than either one of those guys. Yeah. The problem with the king is like what happens when the king's, you know, mentally disabled son is the next king and then his her, his crazy daughter is the next king, yeah. queen, and so on down the line. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we have to return to, I'm, a, I'm an almost total meritocracy advocate. I actually don't think that you would see kind of the doomsday scenario some people outline where there are entire groups that are shoved out of, for example, the upper class in a meritocracy. I think what you'd see is people doing different things. I mean, I think black black people would, in fact, be overrepresented in war, sport, a bunch of other things and might, in fact, bone up the amount that we study and compete in other fields. Um, And I I think that's true across the board. And there are there are also things like the cuisine of country X that people would specialize in and so on. But I mean, I think that for for society overall, it's probably the best possible idea that you have the best people flying your planes and attempting to cure cancer and so on down the line. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not what we have at present. Is it at all the case that people, given 
the people's abilities suited to a particular activity that they are good at, it, it leads to better happiness, leads to better outcomes in that. Let's say if subtracting race, if we just divide people up by IQ strictly, and we kind of in some sort of educational system, kind of fast track people towards uh, activities that would be more suitable to their ability to cogitate. They would be happier where they are, and they might even excel and, and push the boundaries of wherever they end up, like bricklaying or whatever across the board. Well, I don't, I don't know how much you can push the boundaries of bricklaying. I mean, well, we probably get some. We probably get better buildings than we have now. Yeah. I mean, but but no, I I think that that actually, to some extent, is a famous argument against affirmative action. Have you read a mismatch? Uh, I I've heard that argument. And that's what I'm trying to bring up, but I probably didn't summarize it as best as I could have. Mismatch. No, good. I mean, it's basically the argument in mismatch. One of the points mismatch makes that again, I would make primarily to people on the right is that the people that are Black and Latino, essentially. I mean, that's they talk about legacies, but that's not their focus. But the majority of affirmative action recipients actually aren't knuckle dragging morons. I mean, like if you look, when I said Harvard's sixteen percent black, the black SAT at Harvard is over fourteen hundred. The problem is that the SAT at Harvard is like fifteen thirty or fifteen sixty, depending on the year. Yeah. So what you do with diversity forward programs is take people that are actually pretty good. I mean, even going to Southern Illinois University, for example, which is where I went for grad school, where I mean, PhD program is a bit more selective. But the undergrad SAT, I believe, was uh, for the minority cohort is like 1080, 1100. Like, wasn't bad at all. So the question is, what are you doing? The question is not, can these people compete somewhere? It's, can these people compete at Harvard? So there's actually a substantial amount of data that finds that when you take people and you put them in environments, especially if they are good, especially if they are competitors, where they're going to be bringing up the rear of the pack almost all the time, because 1400 is quite a ways behind 1560, they do become more depressed, more upset, et cetera, than they otherwise would be. Yeah. Like, I mean, what would happen absent affirmative action is not that there'd be no black people in college. Most colleges, by the way, are non-selected. So, I mean, when you look, this is the great secret of higher education. There are about 5,000 colleges in the United States. So when you ask, you know, where would all the people currently going to college go if you got rid of legacy programs, affirmative action programs, you know, if the sports focus moved down a tier to what are the smaller schools now? The answer is that all of those people in those categories would just go where, you know, Italian-American city kids are going now. I mean, there are 20 schools in most cities and the majority of them admit 80, 90 percent of their applicants. But if we're talking about people at the higher level, like, yes, the, the people that go to Harvard on, you know, Latino scholarship X would simply go to Michigan in its absence. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think they would do much better at Michigan. I think you'd see higher graduation rates. I think you'd see higher levels of satisfaction, so on. And I also think you'd see a lot of that educational stereotyping stop because people at some level have to understand that if Harvard University is 16% African-American, that's because there was a very substantial bonus that was given to black applicants. The country is not even 16% black. And we're still doing fairly significantly worse on the tests. So that goes away. That entire source of conflict goes away if you eliminate the program. Well, yeah, but now, again, I, Harvard comes with uh, a stamp. It's not just an elite institution. It's an institution that once you get your degree there, you get to be 
a part of the elite. It, it's a fast tracking towards elite. So it's not just onboarding that 16% of blacks. It's, it's, it's increasing the number of uh, black elites, right? So that's kind of, I, I think that's kind of partially why they're doing it. They're trying to modify the representation that we have in the upper echelons of our Yes, it's intentional. This as well as the legacy stuff. Again, so I mean, if you're a professor at Harvard, I mean, the upper middle class is still one of the more fertile cohorts in society. So, I mean, your three or four kids will also probably be able to go to Harvard or a similar school. Right. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. all of this is intentionally shaping who becomes the next leadership class. The problem is that that's the leadership class that gave us, you know, Christine, John Pierre and Jared Kushner and so on. So I don't I don't think this is working very well. I don't think that taking on an endless number of rich men's sons and dubiously qualified members of minority groups and so on is the best way to build an elite. Uh, but actually, I think there's some more practical responses to what you said there. I mean, so first of all, this is one of the things I've had to explain to people who got into the University of Kentucky as opposed to like Brown. First of all, if you graduate from Michigan instead of Harvard, all you're going to do is join an almost equally elite sort of regional leadership team. You work for the governor of Michigan instead of the vice president or something like that. So, I mean, you're going to be living in a neighborhood in suburban Detroit that's identical to the neighborhood you would have been living in in suburban Connecticut. I mean, I I don't really think in terms of the number of publications that come out of that cohort or happiness in life or something that would make a difference at all. Uh, And this is something people forget. I mean, I live uh, just outside of Louisville, which is a city of, I mean, more than a million people, counting the suburbs, about a million and a half people. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially ignored by the the coast, but it is just there. It's the horse racing capital of the world and has the University of Louisville or currently bidding on an NBA team. So I don't think someone who's the mayor of Louisville is going to really care at all that he didn't go to Harvard and become the mayor of Cambridge or, you know, slightly more Hmm. prestigious. Well, it's the difference between a world leader and a provincial leader, right? So there's there's a difference there. Is sort of. I mean, if you if you're the guy who be well, first of all, Michigan's had a couple presidents. I think Ford went to Michigan. I'm not saying that they're exactly compar- and that actually is a, as a U of I man is something kind of funny about Michigan. Like, oh yeah, you had one as Gerald Ford. <laughs> but I mean, just I I think that the extent. So first of all, like I would I would push back a little bit on that. There's an extensive body of research that finds that given an adjustment for IQ, which has become so unpopular to do these days. But you're going to have pretty much the same life if you graduate from any of the top. I think there's 300 universities in the study. What what distinguished the elite colleges, the truly elite colleges? And by the way, the effect was only for like Harvard, Yale and Princeton. Like if you go to Brown you know, or something like that, you're one of the Patriot League schools, you're going to have a good life. But you're not going to have a better life than you would have if you went to Illinois. I, really, you're okay. not. The difference is you're going to be on the East Coast instead of the Midwest. But I mean, the primary predictor of how well college graduates did was the human potential of the graduates, all else being equal. I mean, there there were those slight differences in terms of location of your job and so on. But to a certain extent, the Harvard advantage was just that more smart people opted to go to Harvard. Um, I mean, the cohort of people I know from U of I law includes multiple people that are going to be campaigning for the Senate and so on in Mm -hmm. a couple of years. It's just that you're doing, I mean, I'm pretty well known. It's just, you're doing that in the Midwest or as opposed to on the East coast. And of course, what point to you, Washington is on the East coast, but there's a second level of this. You're also assuming that the guy who goes to Harvard as a selected member of the elite graduates and joins the elite. And that's, that's the real dirty secret of affirmative action that when you look at black graduation rates from a lot of these schools, I mentioned this in taboo, 
But if you look at Berkeley, which is a fairly easy elite school, 81% graduation rate for whites, graduation rate for blacks is like 57%. So, I mean, if you take people that are, again, good enough, but 200 points behind the curve, and you throw them into these environments, especially in something like a business or an econ program, something that might be productive, computer science, they're generally not going to A, make it out and B, do well. So what you see with a lot of these students who, again, would have been absolute top of the class at like Western Michigan or something like that, University of Miami, is that they will either leave the school or they will go into some other field. This is this is the real source. I know gender studies and black studies programs that recruit like this, by the way. Like you specifically look at people that are intelligent, that are failing at elite fields and kind of hint that the reason might be racism. And you have a direct flow of students into what you're doing as a result of that. So, I mean, the question, because I tend to be a long talker, but the question is, do you, are you better off going to the University of Michigan's graduate business school, getting a degree and working for the governor of Michigan, or going to Harvard and getting a degree in postmodern American studies? And I, I think that the answer is obviously number one. Probably for you, definitely for your society. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Kind of off topic, but not really, because it is about schooling. What do you think about the uh, Biden's loan forgiveness uh, 10K that he's handing out? Uh, What's your take on that? Uh, That's one I'm not really all that passionate about. First of all, I think it's a transparent attempt to buy votes, by the way. I mean, and but what's wrong with buying votes? (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of what politicians do. I mean, like the Republican pitch right now is if you elect us, excuse me, we're going to do very specific things like end any residual stuff remaining from COVID, stop crime, do things moral or not. I mean, like just literally, I mean, governors are talking about taking all the junkies off the street and throwing them in jail that are going to make your life better. And that's what a politician kind of does. That's the only thing a politician does, except stick his hand in your pocket and take your money, really offer things that will benefit you as a citizen. So I'm, I'm not surprised. I, I do think it's blatant vote buying, obviously. The, the real question is sort of ethics here, if we're going to discuss this at more than a basic greed level. Yeah. Um, I have enough loans that $10,000 isn't going to make a difference. And I make enough money, especially with my partner, that there's almost no chance that I'm going to fall under like a 250 floor and get any of this money. So I, I can look at this relatively dispassionately, I think. Um I actually sympathize with the student loan recipients. Uh, The conservative blogger or podcaster, now Matt Walsh, was talking about this today. And he said, well, you know, I'm normally one of these big, you know, pay your debts, man's man kind of guys. But what you have to understand is that these people were basically sold a complete bill of bullshit. I mean, the idea was that if you were a kid in that late 90s, upper middle class environment, you were told you had to go to college. Middle class, upper class, as well. I mean, like half of the country, you were told you had to go to college or you'd be a failure. And if you went to college, you wouldn't be. And you were there was a whole process for this stuff. Like, I remember when I was applying to college, I mean, I was kind of a hood kid. So an uncle took me through this and so on. But I mean, it was like, I mean, you'd go to the bank and look at the private loan options and the government would send you the public loan options. You're like 17 at this time. I mean, when you got to college, they had the money changers, as I think of them, with the credit cards out. This wasn't stopped until a couple of years ago. Guys selling you your first platinum visa. You know, my credit limit was like $20,000. Now, I actually am a pretty amoral person when it comes to business. Business is very different from social life. So I ended up owing like $12,000 on that card and just never paying it. Like, I understood it would be a hit on my credit. And I don't like to break my word, but I'd also read through the contract and seen, well, we can sue you if you owe more than this amount. 
So every time a creditor would call me, I would just say, well, why don't you sue me? Why don't you exercise your legal rights? Come after me then. And I'd hang up the phone. And eventually they sent me a thing where like, we don't think you're a huge jackass. Can you pass like $2,000, which is, you know, would you actually close your account because you're making payments? I said, yeah, sure. Send them a check. So, I mean, first of all, don't, don't bankrupt yourself trying to deal with these assholes. Visa doesn't care about you. But I mean, I still remember that though, because I was a kid. I had, a, I literally had a skateboard over my arm. Like my tribe was kind of like raver skater in high school. Hmm. I was walking with my girlfriend, Sabrina Misra, who was, or Sabrina M, whatever. But I mean, who was like from a wealthier community, but was also kind of a party kid. And people were just like deluging us with this paper. And it was just absurd. Like, what makes you think that I'm a good risk? Like the government's already given me $50,000 and the bank's given me $30,000. You just gave me $20,000. Why? <laughs> like what on earth would make you think that at like Illinois at this time, I'm, I'm a good credit risk for you. So I understand that. I understand that people were told they had to go to college. I understand that most people got that one, two, three deal that I did and wound up hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And it was all BS. And a lot of these guys got out with degrees in like Byzantine history that are noble, that are interesting, mm -hmm. but that are, Barista you're not going to make that kind of money. Yeah. And a lot of people don't understand what even the phrase I just usually upper middle class business world, but what even a job in that field pays when you start. So like I worked on a pretty high end sales floor it was the North American headquarters for Marcus Evans, the you know sketchy but fun British company that does high end business events when I was in grad school. And I got hired there and they told me all this stuff like, yeah, this is one of the big floors. Goldman's one floor down. You got to wear a suit and all this. And I said, OK. And then I just I brought up pay. Like, what do I get paid? And they were like, oh, you don't, don't get paid shit, really. I mean, this is sales. So you're gonna have to build a base of clients. Like when you come in here, you're making like $27,000 and it's broken down like this and you have to pay taxes. But if you, when you, if you close one deal, it's $17,000. There's a lot of money potentially. But for the first yeah. year or two, even in a, a potentially high earning job, you're not making very much money. And if you're in something like publishing, that's gonna be the first 10 years, not two. A at any rate, a lot of people are not aware of this. And that's especially the case because of like the fake stunting culture of social media where you look around, it's especially true in the black community. And you see your friends driving Lexuses and so on. And you imagine that this success awaits you. And the degree is your pathway to that success. And you don't know that, you know, somebody's stepdad bought that Lexus for them or it's hey, got it $10,000 from the used auto auction or something like that. So many people bought the dream and they were completely ripped off. So finally got to the point. I get that. Um, I think that the second element of this, though, is that there's no way to get away from someone paying back those loans. That's the real problem. I mean, if you look at the breakdown of collegiate debt, including under $10,000 debt, 57% of it is held by people with graduate degrees. And there, there's no way around that. that. That or something like it is true at every breakdown of levels of debt. So and mm. even at 10K, Biden's package is going to cost $300 billion. So you're taking $300 billion in taxpayer money and using that to pay off a class of debt that's held mostly by the upper class. That's that's kind of the problem. Like if you have any graduate degree, I understand you might not be very successful, but you continued pursuing this dream like way past the associates, buddy. Like at some point you had to take an accounting class. So I, I suppose I oppose it. Hmm. Um, what I would do if I really, if I were king of the world and I were in charge of this, and these are both solutions that are very common, again, on kind of the political center and right. But one obvious option would just be to make student loans dischargeable in bankruptcy. 
Another would be working with kind of a project team and seeing if there's some way to get the colleges on the hook for some of this. That if you graduate a student who is incapable of getting a good job after five years at Purdue or I'll pick on Brown again or any of these upper mid-level institutions, you have to do something about that. Uh, I don't really know how that could be done, though. So just dischargeable and bankruptcy or yeah. some of the basic protections that exist for any other debt, I think is a good first step. I suppose I don't support the taxpayers as a block bailing out well-off kids that racked up more than $10,000 in collegiate debt. That's That really is a hard cause to be sympathetic toward as versus really any other kind of debt, like mm-hmm. medical debt would be an obvious alternative. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or pay off people's mortgages. Car loans, like Car really loans, yeah. anything. Yeah, right. So um, what are you up to now? I know you're teaching a lot, but you also have, uh, do you have any books in the fire? You have a, a radio show that you're doing uh, frequently or a podcast? Yeah, always, always love a chance to plug my content. So th- thanks for that. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I mean, my, the primary thing that I do obviously is teach. I'm still a, I'm an associate professor at Kentucky State University Ask and Pro. plan to stay one, really. I mean, I enjoy my sideline writing. I enjoy my investing, but I, I've yeah. been there for a couple of years, really, really like the university, actually more than five years now. So I, I have a standard faculty deal. I mean, you normally do a two and two or a four and four as a faculty member. I have two classes one semester, two classes the other, sometimes twice that many if you have a busy student schedule. So I, I'm teaching. Uh, you can actually check out some of my classes online. I'll occasionally post links to them on Twitter and the like. But uh, I teach an intro to political science course where we work with some local high schools. Oh, cool. I teach a standard constitutional law course. So I'm, a, I'm an active faculty member. Other than that, obviously, I'm expected to write academically. So myself, uh, Bob Maranto and Pat Wolf, both of the University of Arkansas, just put together a paper looking at what actually predicts sort of successful police performance, which police departments keep crime low while not killing a lot of civilians and what predict what predicts that things like a strong internal affairs department. And we were motivated to do this by kind of each of us in our separate time reading the literature on Black Lives Matter and realizing that there'd been almost no looking at whether Black Lives Matter reduced crime or even whether it, in fact, it didn't. It dramatically increased crime for the five papers on point. So, I mean, a lot of, again, a lot of people in the heterodox internet world know that, but there's been fairly little academic discussion of that. And there's been almost no academic discussion of what actually sort of makes Black Lives Matter. And I'll also add Hispanic, working class white, and everyone else, Eastern European, everyone else's life matter all lives, if you will. Um, yeah. There'd been very little, com- forbidden stuff, but there'd been very little conversation about that. So we just looked at these departments and we ranked the 50 largest cities in the country based on this PPI, the Police Performance Index from one, which actually is New York City. New York City did the best job of keeping murder low while not shooting people in the USA, despite all the heat. It's what police hate in kind of that Kind of that fulcrum city role, yeah. A lot of I don't think most people expected that. Uh, um, what, what time period uh, over the last twenty years? Now, Fifty. Okay. I mean, they actually, all, so almost all big city police departments took a dramatic fall following the uh, the George Floyd killing. I mean, you saw. I mean, quite frankly, in the past two years, you've seen something like a fifty percent surge in murder among blacks. So, yeah, I mean, among traditionally, blacks, like within that among community, blacks black killing blacks. Yeah, black. I mean, among. Black people becoming the victims of homicide, but again, the usual 96% of the shooters are black. Yeah. 
I mean, there's some mob guys and some Hispanic gangbangers, but actual violence against black people is massively, overwhelmingly black on black. But I mean, so there's actually a lot there. I mean, so again, from kind of a culturalist perspective, it's fair to say black people usually have a higher than average crime rate in the country. And there are obviously some modifiers there. I mean, you have to adjust for age, social class, so on. But even leaving all that aside, what we've seen during kind of the 1960s revolution and then the Black Lives Matter follow up is a dramatic increase in sort of black specific crime, because it's normally big, diverse cities that have stopped enforcing the law. Baltimore comes to mind or Detroit. So, I mean, Walter Williams has looked a lot at black communities between sort of 1938, 1945. And what he's found is that they endured a lot of racism, but were pretty functional. So, I mean, in 1938, the black illegitimacy rate was 11 percent, for example. And you saw it's currently 72 percent to give international viewers or something like that a comparator. Uh, whites are at about 40 percent, 37 percent. So, I mean, that that's a recent disaster that's really national in scale. But I mean, the same thing with crime. And I actually didn't expect this. I didn't really want to like go in thinking I'd have some data to use to deflect that sort of high black crime narrative. I figured he'd be you know, brutally honest about that. But what he said was that in this same era, black people made up maybe 24, 25 percent of murder defendants. And that's almost two to one. It's you know, it's what you'd expect given past racism, poverty, so on. But in the time since then, black people have moved up to about 64 percent of all murder victims and perpetrators. So whatever the cause of that initial gap and everyone from the Kendi guys to hereditarians would have something to say about that. We've seen a 300% increase in murders just for us during this whole era of pro black quote unquote social policy. And it's one of the most astonishing, least discussed phenomena in kind of recent American history. Um, So yeah, that word, it doesn't sound like we are allowed to talk about that or else that would be spoken about a lot more. And it seems like it might be the case that people don't want us to talk about that. And maybe it's the policies. What do do you think is the cause of that? Well, I think that there's, so um, I want, I want to get back from that to what happened in New York after the police pullback. But I mean, that, that's a great question. I think that there are two parts to it. Um, One is that acknowledging this fact would mean acknowledging that a lot of well-intentioned liberal policies were complete disasters in the hood. I mean, this goes back to Tom Sowell, the vision of the anointed in 2005, whereas this entire causal model where he describes sort of out of touch ivory tower activists engaging with problems. So there's sort of step one, you encounter a problem that has often existed since the dawn of man, like poverty. Step two, you come up with sort of a, you know, Marxist or POMO derived solution or just novel solution to the problem. Um, This could be anything from massive distributions to the poor, provided they don't work, to building housing projects. Step three, the problem gets worse. And step four, you explain how the problem getting worse had nothing to do with your idiotic solution. So, I mean, it's, it, he applies the model to five or six different things like teen pregnancy. And it's hilarious. Sol, before becoming going into that public intellectual space, is one of the world's best economists. And he's, he still has his quant game pretty on point. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's sort of the same thing with this, like acknowledging that murder, murder increased about 500 percent between 1963 and 1993 when both black and poor white neighborhoods and cities, South Boston comes to mind, stopped enforcing the law. So, I mean, in 1963, you had about 8,000 murders in the whole USA. In 
1993, which was not the highest year for murders during this period, you had, I think, 24,530 murders. So maybe between those two years, you're actually talking about three to 400 percent increase. Don't want to exaggerate. That's huge okay. enough. Right. But I mean, during the Black Lives Matter era, you saw another similar increase where, again, over the past two years, the black murder rates increased almost 50 percent. That's just the black murder rate. I think whites and Asians are up nine percent. So acknowledging what happened would mean putting all of this stuff aside, the golden statues of George Floyd and the the marching and the, the, candy the beautiful stories. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The people, you know, the people, yeah, de- kneeling in Kente and Congress and so on. I mean, it, and recognizing that all that really didn't have anything to do with the problem in the hood, which was elevated levels of crime, which were mostly caused by social policy from the blue side of the fence, I genuinely believe. Uh, so that's one reason it's not talked about. I think another reason people are reluctant to talk about it is that writers on kind of the edgy right, like Steve Saylor, immediately started talking about it. Where, I mean, Saylor actually looked at not just murders, but car wreck deaths. And this is something I'll I'll freely give him credit for. I didn't do this research. Like, he found that car wrecks in Black communities... So whites and Blacks generally have different pathologies. Um, Whites are more... It sounds harsh to put it this way, but are more suicidal, more prone to drug ODs. All these effects are dramatic, by the way. Like, in some age ranges, whites are 500% as suicidal as Black people. Um, So whites are more prone to suicide, OD, DUI, and fatal wrecks, so on down the line. This has been very well known for decades. I mentioned it in Taboo. Blacks are more prone to homicide, robbery. Again, we can speculate about the reasons. I tend to think they're cultural on both sides. But during the kind of racial reckoning, we saw the law lapse so much in large Black cities that Blacks started catching up in some of the white pathologies. And it was, was, I mean, I thought it was almost funny in a horrific sense. But, I mean, you started seeing things like, car wreck numbers reach proportion with our percentage of the population and then go past that. And the simple explanation, which Steve provides, is, well, if you stop enforcing the law, people are going to stop obeying the law. So, I mean, a large number of cities have not only pulled back on stop and frisk, that kind of thing, but have also specifically instituted policies that prevent car stops. No casual car stops because those could be thought to be discriminatory since the majority of drivers pulled over in certain neighborhoods or even overall could be minorities. And the result of that, again, has been more black death. So the reality is that I personally think that there would be sky high rates of crime in Appalachia. They're already pretty high if the same policies were adopted there. The difference is that in poor white and Mexican regions of the country, you tend to see sort of ass kicking Southern sheriff types. Like, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary at all for a Kentucky sheriff of any race to ask someone, also of any race, one of those classic questions, like, what you doing around here, boy? You up to good or no good? I mean, there's not a lot of sympathy for criminals. Mm -hmm. So the the potential that's there in that sort of angry working income population is kind of tamped down. Mm -hmm. And in the major cities over the past couple of years, we just decided to hell with it. Let's not do that. And the group that's poor in those communities happens to be mostly black. So you see rioting mobs, looting whole jewelry stores and so on. It's really crazy. It's really easily avoidable. But at any rate, what uh, the one thing that challenged our numbers on New York was um, what I just described, that crime in the city, again, skyrocketed about the 45 percent we've seen nationally in the last year of our data analysis, which wasn't ideal. But overall, because that happened everywhere, New York was the best performing police department The worst were all in small regional cities with sort of mildly corrupt governments, uh, Baltimore, Little Rock, Las Vegas, 
so on down the line. I mean, not nowhere that would really surprise you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Milwaukee did fairly badly, if I recall correctly. Chicago was quite good. A few, few spots behind New York, as is more than occasionally the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that that's what we did. And I tried to. What do was the predictor of that? Oh, I mean, there there were quite a few predictors of police doing well. Again, doing well is defined as not killing, uh, not, basically not killing citizens, not getting shot, although that wasn't one of our focus variables, but for the officers themselves and keeping crime low. Mm-hmm. That That's really when the police are doing a good job. They're not killing anyone. They're surviving and they're locking up criminals. Uh, a lot of things predicted that. I mean, some stuff that seems fairly apparent, but that few departments do, like teaching officers to fight as opposed to just using their guns, yeah. going hands-on, sometimes called uh, effective internal affairs department. One thing that was very interesting is that you could actually target paperwork in ways, because cops hate paperwork so much, that will not decrease necessary violence, but will decrease kind of incidental uh, incidental violence against, for example, a uh, suspect that won't shut up, probably. But I mean, for example, if you have the police fill out the full 10-page weapon use report every time they draw their gun rather than shoot it. That greatly reduces shootings because guns are drawn less often. You can do the same thing for any beating or hands-on violence incident. I mean, so there there are quite a few techniques. The full paper, if you Google uh, Maranto, Riley, and Wolf, is up. Uh, there, we also wrote a commentary article based on it. But I do some academic research as well. That That's one of a couple things I'm working on. And yes, I have, I have a new book coming out. Oh, really? Which, yeah, I'm actually about a month late on the book, which is going to one of the larger publishers. But it's uh, it's called something, the tentative working title is 12, lie, 12 New Lies Your Teacher Told You or 12 Liberal Lies Your Teacher Told You. Yeah. But in uh, 1994, I think, a famous book was published called The Lies Your Teacher Told You or The Ten Lies Your Teacher Told You, um, depending on edition. But that looked at sort of the things that you might have heard as a student in kind of that jingoistic era of education going through the 60s, the 70s. There weren't many Native Americans in the USA and that sort of thing. And I think that I realized reading through this book, like, okay, this might be true. If you were a kid in Iowa in 1969, you might be hearing this. But for the past 40 years, we've been telling a very different set of lies. So I wrote out a prompt for what those were and sent it to a publisher. And it, it looks like we're going to we're going to run with that. We're going to publish it. I mean, so like one of them, for example, without giving the whole book away, but it's just sort of like all those people that we accused of being Russian spies during the McCarthy era actually were Russian spies. And it's actually a chapter that's dryly funny to write. Like, I mean, I just I printed out the list of people in the Venona cables from Britannica and did some hours of research myself finding out each one. And I mean, all the I mean, Alger Hiss, the Rosenbergs and also more specific people working in the White House and so on were actually Ruski agents. Like many of the people on McCarthy's lists were spies. So the, the whole idea of the Red Scare, just just as as one of these these lies that this is you have movies like Trumbo. The story is that this is this wild thing that we did to beautiful actors and artists like, no, they were all actually communists. Like the, the large majority of these people were agents inside the country. Hmm. So, I mean, hmm. that's one of them. And others, Native Americans weren't peaceful. I just talk about the Aztecs for 10 or 12 pages and, you know, yeah actually get into sort of these ethical questions. Like if you tear down, you know, a temple to the man-eating god of aggressive war, Hudi uh, Puchli, if I have the pronunciation correct, and you build a, a church on top of it, are you doing an evil thing? Why do we tend to think this? So on. So there, there's room for discussion there, definitely. Interesting. Interesting. And any, uh, do, do you run a podcast or a radio show, right? 
or you just oh yeah um, like, I, yes. how can i forget one of the favorite things that i do actually is cut the bull with uh charles love and shamika michelle you can find that oh. literally anywhere you find podcasts we're getting a, a range of interest in it but we are the three hosts of cut the bull if you just google c-u-t the bull i mean you'll find the entire repertoire and we've had a we've had a pretty interesting range of people in there i mean we just talked to buck angel a uh, former trans porn star and current sort of activist, although I doubt uh, he would use that term. But yeah, we've we've gone to Rafael Mangel, uh, who writes about policing, was another fairly recent guest. Hmm. The who's the libertarian comedian? Dave Smith, I think we hmm. had uh, yeah. on the show very recently. Great guy. So, I mean, there are right now there are about two years worth of episodes that I certainly encourage people to check out. I'm on the radio all the time, but I don't really host the show. Yeah, okay, okay. I fill in sometimes for a show called Larry Glover Live, and when I do, I'll I'll reach out and try to bring people on on yeah, the program, yeah, 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 yeah. but not none as as of now. Well, Wilfred, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, thank you very much for your time and for the uh, you know, neo level download of information that you just gave me <laughs> and uh, okay. my audience. Well, thanks, thanks as always for having me on. For sure. I'm going to 